0: During 2020, we met outside for six months in Sacramento, so this is a little bit of a throwback for me. Some good, some traumatic memories. Um, But on behalf of my family, let me thank you all uh, for your warm inclusion of us and your fellowship. And in the fun this weekend, we've had a tremendous time. Uh, My children, I've hardly seen them, so they had a great time. Uh, And if you at all um, kept any of our kids from peril or delinquency when we were not around, thank you. And uh, my wife and I appreciate your help. But it's been really a privilege to be among you and to uh, uh, worship God together and to fellowship and just to enjoy fun together. And I want us, if you would, take your copy now of God's Word and turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. And we're going to conclude our time, if you're just joining us this morning, we've spent this weekend considering our vision of God, that He might expand it according to His Word, and that He might show us who He is, and He might um, remove all of the ways that we diminish His being and His glory in our thoughts and contemplations. And we've looked already at Exodus 3 and considered the God who is as the independent, incomprehensible, and irreducible being, We considered His perfect blessedness and life and joy in Himself from Psalm 119. And we want to consider now from Isaiah 6, His holiness. I'm going to read for us Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. And in Isaiah 6, verse 1, it is written, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help as we consider his word this morning. Our Father, you are the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, and it was. And you have shown in the hearts of your children to see the light of the glory of your glorious knowledge in the face of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we pray that the same might happen again by your saving and sanctifying power this morning. Be with all who hear and the one who speaks, that you would be clearly perceived through the eyes of faith, and that your church may be built in holy comfort and confidence upon the sure foundation of your word. And we pray this, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. For even many Christians today, the word holy has become all too tragically common. It seems a bit too serious. In our age, we tend to gravitate more towards humor before we will go to holiness. I mean, isn't it just weird fundamentalists who are concerned about holiness? And if holiness comes up at all, it's often to dismiss others as being, quote, holier than thou, Or we use it in some kind of cheap and trivial pun like a Christian coffee shop I once ran into. was called Holy Grounds. But in Scripture, far more than any other self-description, God ascribes to himself holiness. In the Hebrew Old Testament, before you could bold or italicize words for emphasis, emphasis was carried along through repetition. So, for example, in Genesis 2.17, where we read in our English Bibles, God warning in Adam and Eve that in the day they eat of the tree, you will surely die. The Hebrew there is literally dying, you will die, which means emphatically, you will certainly die. But there's only one threefold repetition in Scripture. Only one triad. There's one place where God repeats something three times to make a point, and it's right here. What we call the Trisagion in verse 3. He is holy Holy, holy, that is entirely, emphatically, absolutely, God is holy. Now, this emphasis was not altered at all in the new covenant and the fulfillment of the coming of our Lord Jesus. What did our Lord Jesus teach us to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew six, verse nine? Our very first petition in that prayer is, "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name." Now, hallowed is just old English to treat as holy. Literally, that prayer is, Father, may your name be kept holy. That is, Jesus taught us, his disciples, that your first petition in prayer, which represents your main ambition in life, is that God be regarded as holy in all things. Around his exalted throne, God is proclaimed holy, holy, holy. And the great ambition of the life and ministry of his disciples of Christ is that God would be regarded holy on earth as he is in heaven. Yet given our general ambivalence to holiness, we have to agree with our late brother R.C. Sproul who said this, The failure of modern Christianity is the failure to understand the holiness of God. But to fail to understand God's holiness is to fail to understand God at all. So we cannot fail here. Holiness is far bigger than what we may have assumed, and that's what we want to consider this morning from this text. We find that God's holiness is His regard for His own glory. And when we grasp this, it can reorient literally everything in our lives and all of our worship and discipleship before Him. I want us to ask just two simple questions this morning that have very profound answers. What is the holiness of God, and what does God's holiness mean for us? That's our two points. What is God's holiness, and what does it, His holiness mean for us? Let's consider first answering what is the holiness of God, and I want us to survey scripture and consider the Bible's description and then come to something of a definition. So let's consider the Bible's description of holiness. Now, what first comes to your mind when you hear the word holy is probably something along the lines of morally strict or pure or righteous. That is that God can never do anything evil or wrong. And that's, of course, completely true. But that's not all we must say about holiness. It's, in fact, far more basic to God than simply moral purity. God's holiness is fundamental to his very being. It is, if you will, his eternal godness. The late J.I. Packer said this, Holiness signifies everything about God that sets Him apart from us and makes Him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. It is the Godness of God. And you see this throughout Scripture as holiness comes up in the pages of the Bible. For example, in Revelation 15, the saints who conquered and who praise God for His coming judgment, in Revelation fifteen four, they sing this song of victory. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. We revere and we glorify God in all His works because He alone is holy he uniquely reigns and judges over all in holiness and of course the church's praise in revelation 15 was typified by the song of Israel in exodus 15 when Israel triumphed over Egypt in the exodus and we read this in exodus 15:11 who is like you o lord among the gods who is like you majestic in holiness he's exalted and set apart And He's distinct from any other power, whether it be Pharaoh, whether it be any other false God. There is no one like God because He is holy, alone. And this is going to course through Isaiah's prophecies later, if you're familiar with this book, especially when you get to the latter part of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 48. We see things like this in Isaiah 43, to whom will you compare me, that I should be like him, says The Holy One. No one is like God because God alone is the Holy One. He's without comparison or class. If you remember from our first session in Exodus 3, that's his what? His aseity. His independence. He is of himself, the independent God. And so he is the Holy One. And he takes holy even as his name in Scripture. In Mary's Magnificat, in Luke 1, verse 49, Mary declares this, He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God's unique divine power, his miraculous work, his work as the only creator and the source of all things, is what identifies him as holy. And we can rightly address and worship him as the only Holy One, who is holy, holy, holy. There is no one like God. And this is the most basic concept behind the word holiness as it appears in your Bible. Both the Greek and the Hebrew word that are translated by the English word holy have as their root meaning set apart, distinct, different, separate. Separateness is the idea of holiness. And that's even evident when holiness is emphasized with God's interaction in creation. Remembering again that significant moment in Exodus 3 when the Lord appears to Moses. He appeared in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. That fire wasn't sparked by creation. That fire was not consuming it. It couldn't be touched, grasped, or contained. And God told Moses in Exodus 3, 5, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. You can't approach Holiness it's set apart. God's presence is regularly depicted by fire which we cannot contain or control or come near to. Paul in Hebrews 10:29 says our God is a consuming fire that is he is distinctly holy and set apart from his creation and the place of his presence is distinguished in holiness. When God then asked for when Moses asked for God's name God says as we this considered i am which is circular and self-reflexive he's independent he's irreducible he's incomprehensible he's distinguished from his creation that is he's holy there is no class in which god's a part god has no peers god is self-existent without cause he's independent without needing anything he's not compounded of anything he's simple he's eternal not circumscribed by time and all of that is to say he is holy He is set apart. And this helps us by understanding something of the breadth of what Scripture reveals. Helps us here in Isaiah 6 to understand the song of the seraphs in verse 3. They call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And notice what Isaiah tells us in verse 2. That each of these seraphs has six wings. Two covering their face and two covering their feet. Beloved, these are unfallen angels. These are sinless beings. They have not committed any moral evil. They have never rebelled against God. They have no guilt and no impurities. And yet God's transcendent and exalted distinction as holy means that even pure, sinless angels cannot see God. They must cover their face. And they must cover their feet. They cannot tread on the holiest of place, even though they are without sin, because God alone is holy. Angels will sing this around the throne for eternity. In John's vision in Revelation 4 8, we read also day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God is holy, 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 because He is. Set apart, separate, distinct from anything else, He is God. That means, friends, when we think about the distinction between us and God in His holiness, we're not just thinking of degree, we're thinking of entirely different kind. It's not like there's a continuum of holiness and we're on one end and God is on another. And that He happens to just be more holier than we are. No, we're on different lines, We're not even in the same class as God. Even unfallen angels are covering their feet and face in view of His peerless supremacy as the Holy One. And if we want to consider the distance between us and God further, we might want to think about the comparison between worms and angels. That's what the Puritan John Owen said. Listen to this. This is John Owen, and he asked this question. What is an angel more than a worm? A worm is a creature... And an angel is no more. God made the worm to creep in the earth. God made the angel to dwell in heaven. But there's still a proportion between these two. They agree in something. But what are all the nothings of the world to the God infinitely blessed forever? You see what he's saying? Angels and worms have more in common than us and God. Because we're all creatures he is the Creator. He is alone, holy, holy, holy. You see, when we consider the holiness of God, we have to think far more than moral purity. In fact, thinking of it only as moral purity actually hinders us from understanding what purity even is, as we'll see in a moment. But for God to be holy means not just He's pure, but He's peerless. He's not only impeccable, He's incomparable. God's not only moral, He's majestic. God's holiness, as Packer said, is God's godness. He is exalted as the only God. So to say He's holy is to say He's God. This is how Scripture describes it. So let's think about how we should define it then in view of this. Here's a couple thoughts from some Reformed and Puritan friends who have gone on before us. Edward Lay in the 17th century said this, God's holiness is the incommunicable eminence of the divine majesty, exalted above all, divided from all. God's eminence and exaltation and separation. Or our Dutch friend Wilhelmus Abrakel said holiness is the pure essence of the character of God. The Lord is holiness itself. He is holiness. It's him. Or the Puritan Thomas Boston, he remarked this way, Holiness is the essential glory of the divine nature. I think Boston gets it there. Holiness is God's essential glory. Notice again in verse 3 of Isaiah 6, the parallel between holiness and glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. God's glory is the manifestation of His holiness. His absolute being as creator. So God's glory and His holiness are are interwoven throughout Scripture. Consider Leviticus 10.3, when Nadab and Abihu disregarded the commands of God in worship and desecrated His holiness and they're struck dead. God declares this in verse 3, Among those who near me, I will be sanctified, that is, treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be glorified. In the Bible's conception of glorifying God, it is regarding His holiness. It is exalting Him and setting Him apart as the only true God. To glorify God is to exalt His holiness as God. That's why our first petition in prayer in the Lord's Prayer is that God would be treated as holy. That is, God may you be glorified as God. God may you be set apart for who you are. So that means when God seeks His glory, He seeks the manifestation of exalting His holiness. He's regarding Himself. When we set something apart as holy, we are setting it apart to God. That's what we mean by holiness. Holiness is God's perfect devotion to himself, to his own greatness. One theologian put it like this, God's holiness is his sacred self-regard. That's probably the best definition I've come across. God's holiness is a sacred self-regard. God is holy because He is perfectly devoted to the Holy One, Himself. That must mean that holiness for us is related to our devotion to God, His incomparable greatness and impeccable purity. That brings us then to our second question. What does holiness mean for us? If holiness is God's sacred self-regard and devotion to Himself, That means holiness for us must mean devotion to God, regard for God. And the implications are tremendous. I want to touch on just four at sort of the center of our lives. Let's consider first what this means in terms of God's moral standards. God's moral standards for us as His image bearers. We can see already as we talk about personal holiness... When we talk about God's holy law, we are not talking about a standard outside of God that he submits to. There's no principle, there's nothing prior to God that he is composed of or that he agrees with. There's just God, right? He is. That means what we call morality or righteousness or holiness or justice is just the expression of God's character in creation. The standard of morality is God. The standard of righteousness is God. The standard of holiness and purity is God. And so if God's holiness is His sacred self-regard, then any holiness we might have or exhibit is a sacred regard for God. It's devotion to Him. That's what the moral law of God is, beloved. It's the definition and description of how to be devoted to God you could summarize every command in, every, in all the Word of God as how to be devoted to God. Stephen Sharnock, the Puritan, said it like this, God's law is the image of God's holiness. It's a transcript of His righteousness. It's the overflow of His goodness. This is why separating obedience to the moral commands and law of God and devotion to God is completely nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. To seek to obey God's law is to be devoted to God. It's the expression of God's holiness to us as His creatures. When God says, be holy as I am holy, He is saying, be devoted to me as I am to myself and as I created you to be. To worship me, to love me, to listen to me, to hear me. Be as devoted to my own glory as I created you. To be. And friends, this is why each and every one of us, by nature, are guilty before God, regardless of the differences in our conduct and the particular manifestations of our moral and ethical behavior. Here in Isaiah 6, what we have is Isaiah's call to prophetic ministry. But you'll notice we're in chapter 6 and not chapter 1 of this book. I've spent a lot of time and study to point out these kind of in-depth observations to you. This is chapter 6, not chapter 1. And usually, if you're familiar with the Old Testament prophets, the call to ministry comes up in chapter 1. Ezekiel's call to ministry is Ezekiel 1-3. Jeremiah's call to ministry is Jeremiah 1. But Isaiah's is in chapter 6. Isaiah's book begins with five chapters that describe Israel's unbelief and idolatry, their oppression and sin towards one another. And if you start and just glance at chapter 5, verse 8, we have the first woe that Isaiah pronounces on Israel. Woe is a declaration of judgment, of impending condemnation. And there's a litany of them. they start in chapter 5, verse 8, woe to those who join house to house, that is, those who oppress others and steal their real estate and their land. And Isaiah will go on through chapter 5, and there are six woes in all of Isaiah 5. Now, if you know anything of something of Hebrew accounting going back to the days of creation, that's something of a cliffhanger. The number six is incomplete. Seven is the number of completion, the number of totality, because that is the number of creation. So there are six woes. That are that judgment is pronounced upon God's people, Israel. Because there's one more party that needs to have condemnation pronounced upon him. Isaiah 6 verse five, and I said, the seventh woe: Woe is who? Me. Woe is me. The condemnation of God's just holiness on his people is not complete until it includes even the prophet himself. He falls under it. And however, Isaiah compared to others, he saw the Lord, and it is against God and God alone that he had sinned. And in view of God's holiness, Isaiah saw who he really was. And he was utterly undone, without excuse. He has not had a sacred regard for God perfectly and perpetually in all his life. And however distinct Isaiah was from the oppressive and grotesque and idolatrous in Israel, he too was condemned by the holiness of God. And so he says and points out in verse 5, he's a man of unclean lips. Now that's not just Isaiah's speech as though maybe he had a cursing problem. Your lips represent your life. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth does what? Speaks. What you say says who you are. Isaiah knew that. He's a man of unclean lips. His speech reveals his heart. And however better he may have been in comparison to others in Israel, in comparison to perfect devotion to God, he fell woefully short like everyone else. Friend, this is why we are all condemned as sinners. Every single man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. Regardless of the degree or the kinds of actual sins of which we may or may not be guilty, or whatever else distinguishes us from others, sin at its root is a failure to be perfectly and perpetually devoted to God as He created us to be. The God in whom we live and move and have our very being created us to be devoted to Him as He is to Himself, and we have refused. And so we all stand judged as sinners. And our sin against an infinite, independent God is worthy of an infinite and eternal judgment. And that's what the Bible promises for all who by nature are sinners outside of Christ. That means we must consider secondly, in view of God's holiness, God's saving grace. Not just His moral standards, but His saving grace. What about holiness and salvation? Can we think about those in the same sentence? Or what about holiness and God's love? Sometimes Christians speak this way. Well, we don't want to talk about God's love too much. We want to talk about His holiness as though they're in competition. We've got to balance the holiness of God with the the love of God. Beloved, you don't balance anything in God because all that is in God is God. And we never separate the love and holiness of God because we cannot divide God. We praise Him as distinct, and God is not divided. He's not contradictory as we are. And the good news about the love of God, beloved, is that it's holy. If holiness is God's sacred self-regard, that means God not only regards Himself in judgment, God regards Himself in salvation. Consider Hosea 11, verse 9 with me. Hosea 11.9 Here the Lord speaks to Israel who is bent on turning away and God says this, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. Do you catch that? Why would God not execute judgment or destroy his sinful people because he is holy and not a man. What do men do in the face of repeated infidelities? What do you and I do? We want to burn people down. We want vengeance. We want it now. But God is holy. So God responds to his people's infidelities in love. God responds in love because He is holy. He loves His people to whom He's committed in grace because He's holy. That's why here in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, as He declares He dwells in the midst of an unclean people, he, He's not blame-shifting to others. He's saying, I have no resources around me. That is, Isaiah is recognizing my lips are unclean, and so is everyone else I know. I can't find anyone who's not ruined like me. I have no resources, no assistance, no help is coming to me from society. It must come to me from outside. And so in the midst of being entirely taken apart, what do we see in verse 6? A seraph flies to Isaiah with a coal from the altar. Isaiah is in the temple. This is the bronze altar. This is the altar where sacrifices are made so God's people could approach the Holy One without receiving what they deserve, which is death for their sin. So there is a substitute whose death is appointed in the place of His people so that God's people may approach Him and commune with Him and enter in God's presence without dying in judgment. That's the altar the seraph takes the coal from. And he brings that coal to Isaiah's lips, not to ceremoniously wave sin away. And it's not like the pain of the coal touching his lips atones for Isaiah's sin. That coal comes from the altar as a promise. The angel brought the fire of a sacrifice appointed for sinners on behalf of their sin to touch Isaiah and to say, the promise appointed substitute is for you. It's yours. Your sin has been atoned for. Your guilt, your unclean lips have been covered. God provided the substitute to save His people from His own justice because He is holy, holy, holy. God has resolved in grace to deal with His people's sin because of His holiness. Many remember the reformer Martin Luther for his stand at the Diet of Worms, where he said, Here I stand, I can, I can do no other. And while certainly that was a, a massive point in church history, my favorite moment and sentence that Martin Luther ever penned was Thesis 28 of the Heidelberg Disputation. I know you're thinking, I was just reading the Heidel- Heidelberg Disputation yesterday <laughs> during free time. But listen to this, thesis 28 of Luther's Heidelberg disputation, he said this, the love of God does not find, but creates what is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find, but creates what is pleasing to it. We find what is pleasing to us and so then we put our love because it's pleasing. But what in, the, what in us is there for God to find, to find pleasing to Him? We have disregarded His holiness. We have forsaken His law. We have refused His good nature. We have taken everything He has given to us to sustain us in life and breath and everything, and we have thrown it back in His face in rebellion. What is there in us for God to see us by nature and be pleased with it? So God's love does not find what is pleasing, it creates it. He sets His love upon unworthy people like you and I and creates it. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 49, John says that Isaiah said these things because he saw Him, the Lord Jesus, and spoke of His glory. God, who revealed Himself to Isaiah, God the Son, would come and assume humanity, and He would live the perfect perpetual life devoted to God that no man has ever lived. And he lived that to lay that life down on the cross so that all who trust him have credited to them his perfect perpetual devotion to God on their account. Fully realized human holiness in the Lord Jesus Christ is credited to everyone who trusts him. And on the cross, the Lord Jesus fulfilled what every sacrifice at that altar pointed to. And he suffered the judgment of the holy God on behalf of all who trust him. And the cross then, typified here in Isaiah's vision, is not to get God to love us. The cross is an expression of the holy love of God in coming to his beloved and to make us pleasing to him in Jesus Christ. God's love does not waver towards his people because he alone is his holy, and God has set his eternal love on his beloved and sent his son on our behalf. Dear Christian, the Lord Jesus did not die on the cross to get his father to love you. The Lord Jesus died on the cross because God has loved you from all eternity. And as Gerhardus Voss said, the best proof that God will never cease to love you is that he never began because eternal love has no beginning. The cross of the Lord Jesus typified in the coal of the altar is the expression of the eternal love of God. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. God's holiness means that you have no excuse for your sin and you have no escape from the coming judgment. None at all. But God's holiness means also there is a Redeemer and a Savior for you to call upon who has satisfied God's holiness in his life and satisfied your unholiness in his death. And he has risen again so that all who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Trust him. Turn to him. And know the holy love of God in Jesus. Rest in him. That brings us then, thirdly, to God's sanctifying work. His sanctifying work. In my experience as a pastor, far too many Christians think of sanctification as simply becoming a better version of who they already are. A little moral improvement, often with methods that are a little different from the support groups of the world. But if God's holiness is His devotion to Himself, His sacred self-regard, that means that personal holiness, or what we call sanctification, is becoming more devoted to God like God. And what we see then is it's far bigger than the sins that bother us the most. And as we looked at yesterday morning, that's often what brings us to a trusted friend or a counselor or a pastor, isn't it? It's the sin that bothers us the most, the the anger that is disturbing our marriage or our vocation, the porn that is upsetting our conscience. But those are just the sins that bother us. And holiness is not just stopping those sins which we ought to pursue, but we're also called to love. We're called to righteousness just like God. Why did Jesus teach us to love our enemies and to do good and be kind and show mercy? He said in Luke 6 because he is kind and your Father is merciful. Beloved, kindness and love and mercy is holiness, it is an expression of the holy God. So that means change and growth for us into greater holiness begins with proximity to God and to worship and commune with the holy God. This is what happens for Isaiah. You notice in verse 8, he hears the voice from God of being sent on his mission, and Isaiah says readily, Here am I. And he's being sent to no easy ministry. The next verses basically send him into a ministry of failure where people will hear but not understand and see and not perceive. And Isaiah's to do it, he asks in verse 11, how long? Until judgment falls. Isaiah is being sent on a ministry to failure. There is no seminary students who are answering this in the bulletin board of the lounge room. Who wants this ministry? Go to dead people until judgment falls and they kill you. Who wants that? Isaiah says, send me. Why? Why? because that's the reflex of the man who knows that devotion to God is worth it regardless of the outcome. You worship a holy God regardless of what it requires. You join God's devotion to Himself and you extend His worthy glory even more. Beloved, as we behold the greatness of God and holiness, we are being transformed into the same from one degree to the next. Worship is a means of holiness. And if I might add from my own observation and experience, one of the most missing in the Christian life. Communion with God, worship and prayer is a means of growing in holiness because holiness is simply devotion to God. Many Christians struggle over and over with immaturity and sin and doubts and they're desperately looking for techniques like the world and all the while ignoring their need to meditate and contemplate and commune and consider God is holy and sovereign and loving and gracious. Beloved, it is devotion to God who will create new life in you and in your home and He will send you perhaps to the mission field or maybe just across the living room to properly discipline and raise and love your children. It is devotion to Him. That brings us finally and fourthly to seeking our holy God, to seeking Him. And I especially want to make this point to those who may be gathered with us this morning and you are hurting and struggling and life is hard. Beloved, God's holiness is your comfort. Consider Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2.2. 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Beloved, it is the fact that our God is incomparably and singularly independent of creation, that you can rely on Him, And Him alone as your rock. And He is totally dependable in His grace and in His mercy and in His love because He is holy, completely consistent, unwavering, unchanging, unimpacted by the turmoil of this world. You can rest your everything on God because He's holy There is no pillow as soft as the rock who is our God, because He is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah will write later in Isaiah 43, verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It is precisely because God is holy, holy, holy that you can look to Him and seek Him and search for Him and pray to Him as your Savior. And he is completely faithful. The exalted transcendence of God is what sets him apart as the only one to whom we can look to save us in our need and to rescue us in our distress. It is because God is holy that we call on His name. We commune with Him in prayer. We seek Him in His Word. And we exalt Him in our lives. John Calvin, who was probably converted sometime around 1530, says very little in his writings about his testimony. We don't know a lot about the circumstances. But in just one passage in the preface to his commentary on the Psalms, Calvin simply wrote, God subdued me. That was his testimony. That's a good one. God subdued me. That's what God intends to do, beloved. Subdue us. That's what His holiness must do. It's actually what we were created for, to be subdued, to exalt and enjoy our God. And that's what He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to redeem us for again, to reconcile Him, to us to Him, and to be subdued to worship the God who is holy, holy, holy. May His holiness mark our meditation and prayer and praises and our lives until the day when all we will see forever is the holiness of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise You as You alone are holy. We exalt Your name and we thank You for the comfort and the conviction that we receive from knowing Your holiness. And we pray that this insufficient meditation would be used by Your Spirit to broadcast Your glory abroad in our heart and mind, That we would have greater thoughts, greater wonder, deeper worship of you and your eminence. Father, we pray for any who are outside your grace in Jesus this morning that you might draw them to yourself in faith. We pray for all our dear brothers and sisters this morning struggling in various ways with trials and concerns that you would console and comfort them by your holy presence and promises. And Father, we pray above all, you may be regarded as holy here on earth as you are in heaven, and you might use us to that end. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.